That's kind of, don't seem too excited to see me. Good morning again, saints. All right, that's much better. If you didn't have a chance to fill out the connection pad, will you please uh, take a moment um, to do that uh, as well? Those, the connection pads are a way in which we follow up with our guests. And if you would like a phone call from the pastor, you can put that on the connection pad as well, and I'll give you a call. If you uh, have your Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we will be looking at verses 43 through 47. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. Many adults um, in America grew up watching an individual who possessed a unique gift. Uh, this person had a goodwill gift, a, a welcoming kind of gift, a kind gift, a warm gift. He had a gift that, that allowed him to make everyone feel like a neighbor as a kid. And that individual was, is Fred Rogers and his children's show, Mr. Rogers' uh, Neighborhood. And, and every adult who watched that kid as a show, they, they wanted to live in that neighborhood. They wanted to be Mr. Rogers' neighbor in real life. Why? Because they trusted him. That when, when you watched him on TV, you really believed he was that kind in real life. And he had a way of making everyone feel important. He had a way of making everyone feel loved. Mr. Rogers once says, said that, that love isn't a state of perfect caring. It is an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. Right here and now. This active love that strives to accept a person the way they are is what I want to talk about this morning. This active love is really a way of wholeness. It's a way of wholeness, the inner kind of wholeness that, that Christ desires for his people. Active love is a flourishing love. It allows us as people, as Christians, if you are Christian, to flourish in the ways of Jesus Christ. And here's my main point today. Loving your neighbor is an active love that includes loving the other. The other is someone who's different than you. Loving those who oppose you and loving people you don't like. So let's be honest. There are people we just don't like. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse beginning with verse 43. These are the words of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for you and to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet and welcome your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do 
the same. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, as we come to the preaching of the word, we need you to move in in our hearts. We need you to be the counselor who leads us into all truth. We need you to apply the word to our minds and to our hearts because there is no understanding of scripture apart from you. I don't care how many books we read or how smart we are, if we went to seminary, if you don't move, there is no understanding and there is no change, Lord. So Holy Spirit who lives in us in a supernatural way, will you move, continue to move in this place and let everyone here receive what they need to receive. Someone here who doesn't know Jesus in faith, I pray you bring conviction upon them. Show them their need of a savior and call them into the kingdom today. And I pray that that person may not resist that call. This is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You know, when we say love your neighbor, that that, that sounds so straightforward. It may seem so practical. It really sounds good on paper and and nice little memes that you put on social media or on Facebook and Twitter. It sounds wonderful. But before y'all hit the ground running, there's a question that, that we need to ask and there's a question that we need to answer. Who's my neighbor? Who's do you consider to be your neighbor? According to Webster's Dictionary, there's two definitions of neighbor. First, a neighbor is one that lives or located near you, like in your neighborhood. And the second definition of neighbor is fellow man or fellow human being. Which one do you think scripture is referring to when it says love your neighbor? It's the second definition. Fellow neighbor. Fellow neighbor. Every image bearer of God is your neighbor. Every last one of them. And that statement is true without nuance, without shades of gray. Every human being, all human beings are your neighbor without any exceptions. The whole Bible is even clear on on that point, which means it's even clear in the Old Testament. But do you believe that? Loving your neighbor as yourself, it it didn't originate with Jesus. Did you know that? It didn't originate with him. It's part of the Torah, the Mosaic law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of of the Bible. The truth of loving your neighbor, it it really originated in Leviticus. Leviticus uh, 19, verses 7 through 17 and 18. Listen to what God says to the people of Israel. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. At least you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Neighbor in these verses do refer to fellow Israelites. Israelites, the uh, the same Israelites within the same tribe and Israelites in the other tribes. Because Israelite has 12 different tribes. So when, when God is saying love your neighbor, it's loving those who are in your tribe and those in the other 11 tribes. That's what it means. It's kinship, but it's not limited to just kinship or Israelites only. Loving your neighbor is also expanded in the Old Testament. The stranger, 
the other, the immigrant, the outsider, the sojourner, all of them, all of those people are brought into the realm of neighbor. But do you believe it? Leviticus 19, if we read on in Leviticus 19, you get to verses 33 and 34. Listen to what the word says. When a, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you should not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Do you see it, TVC Saints? The Old Testament doesn't place restrictions on neighbor. It doesn't fence neighbor. It doesn't limit neighbor to just family relationships. It's not limited to just people who look like you, think like you, believe like you, vote like you, parent like you, eat like you, or have the same interests as you. People place limits on neighbor. Not Yahweh, not Jesus. We put up the fence and we put a lock on the entrance to keep certain people out. Or we put a code up because, you know, we like electronics. So who's your neighbor? What people are you fencing and locking out of your neighborhood? Many people, including some of you, you have what I call a HMA. It's a hot mess anthropology. And anthropology is the study of humans, human behavior and societies. And a hot mess anthropology, it views people in black and white terms. It's a binary thinking about humans usually result in you placing them in two categories that are mutually exclusive. The good, the evil, the right, the wrong, the beautiful, the ugly, the smart, the stupid, the perfect, the terrible, the Democrat, the Republican, the rich, the poor, the haves, the have not, the ally, the foe, the sinner, the righteous, the hero, the villain, the victim, the savior, the innocent, the criminal. And we do that. I mean, we do that. You see, a hot mess anthropology, it doesn't leave room for nuance and context. It overlooks the fact that all human beings have shades of gray about them. They do. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. If you, if you ever watch the, the Godfather, those men were criminals. But you know what? They loved their family. And they loved their kids. But they were criminals and they would kill people. But they so loved their family. So what is that? What do you do with that? How do you reconcile that? They aren't just criminals. They also have the ability to love. And when you watch that movie, you see that in that movie. It's not just black and white. It's a whole bunch of shades of gray about who we are as human beings. But a hot mess anthropology, it put limits on who we consider to be our neighbor. It puts up a fence and, and put a lock on those we don't want to recommend. It reduces image bearers of God to either or. You're either black or you're white. You're either good or you're bad. You're either with me or against me. You're either my neighbor or my enemy. These are amen statements. In such is the state of affairs in the Sermon on the Mount here. 
Binary thinking is at work. A hot mess anthropology is on play because somewhere throughout Israelite history, the Old Testament view on neighbor has been changed. And it concerns Jesus. And he reveals the limits that have been placed on neighbor. He calls out the fence and the lock. He does so by using a familiar phrase that you all should know at this point. You heard that it was said. And that phrase is not thus says the Lord. It's a reference to Israel's historical, traditional and cultural understanding and interpretation and application of God's word. Look at verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Do you see the hot mess with that? Do you see the black and white thinking? Do you see the limitations placed on neighbor? Do you see the categories people are being placed into? Enemy, neighbor, love, hate. What about y'all? What two categories are you placing people into to justify the way you see them? Who's in the love category? What do people got to do to be in your love category? Who's in the hate category? And what are they doing for you to put them in that category? Who's your neighbor? Who's your enemy? The Old Testament teaches that enemies are to be treated with kindness. Did you, did you know that? Proverbs 25 verse, 25, verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry... Give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Those are not my words. Those are God's words. Exodus 23 says, if you meet your enemy's donkey, ox or donkey, donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey or the one, or the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with. That is extending kindness to people who don't like you. And when you hear those verses, what do y'all really think about it? And how do you really feel about it? If you've really been honest, you would not amen those verses. If you're being true to who you really are. Now, you would amen it to look good on Sunday morning. But you know when you live out here, leave here you're not going to amen those verses in real life. The Old Testament also, on the other side, there are passages in the Old Testament that uh, that appear to approve of hating one's enemy. Here's a few of them. Um, Psalm 5, 5 says, the boastful should not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, 5 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. Psalm 26, verses 4 and 5 says, I, I do not set with men of falsehood. Nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I would not sit with the wicked. And Psalm 139 says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? So which is it, saints? Are we treat, do we treat our enemies with kindness? Or do we love our neighbor, or do we hate our enemy? Which is it? Saints, please make a note of this. Please put a pen in this. Even though there are verses and passage in the Old Testament that talk about judgment towards God's enemies. 
the Old Testament never commands the people of God to hate their enemies. You can, you can, you can go here, you can pull out the Hebrew, you will never find a command that says to the people of God, hate your enemies. Never. You would never find that in the Old Testament. Verse by verse, you'd never find such a commandment. But now when scripture collides with our experience, well, life becomes blurry. It does. Justifications come. Bad theology is developed. And this is happening in in, in a church all over America. When scripture collides with life experiences, we look for ways to justify sin, to justify the way we treat others. And we spiritualize it. Bad theology, bad exegesis, misinterpretation happens. One author says, listen to what this author says. He says, for a people long oppressed who were currently under the heavy cultural and financial boot of the Roman Empire, hating one's enemy not only seems natural, but divinely patriotic. Which is a comparison to a modern day notion of Christian America that is interpreted as standing up against certain aspects of government and culture. Do you see it? It's part of who we are to place people in categories that God has not placed us in. Where do you think Jesus got his teaching on enemies from? Does it originate with him? Is our savior building the airplane as he flies it? No, no. His teaching about enemies comes straight out of the Old Testament. It comes straight out of the scripture. But do we believe that? Right out of the Old Testament. He's not making this stuff up on the Sermon on the Mount. It's straight out of scripture. That's where he gets it from. He's just bringing a clear understanding of what the Old Testament teaches. Remember what he says in verse 17. I do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what he says in verse 44 is part of that fulfillment. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He isn't correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting human misunderstanding, misinterpretation, and misapplication of God's word and law. And that is not something that is unique to Israel. That still happens today. And in this context, he's removing the limits and the restrictions people has placed on neighbor. And here's the thing. They were discipled to put those restrictions there. It didn't, the world didn't tell them to do that. Their spiritual leaders discipled them to do it. Look at church history in America. We are discipled, even within the church, on who our neighbor is and who our neighbor is not. That's not the world doing that. We're doing it within the body. And so Christ is saying, I'm chopping down those fences. I'm cutting those chains away. I'm going to reconcile your experience with scripture in a way that is biblical, in a way that is healthy. See, I love the message Bible because it's, I love the interpretation. It says, you're familiar with what was said to them of old, love your friend and this unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemy. That's what I'm telling you. And saints, neighbor isn't just people who look like you, talk like you, vote like you, agree with you, parent like you, spend money like you. 
Neighbor isn't just your biological family. Now, I know when you go to Turkey Day, you're going to wish some people didn't come because you don't want to be around them. But even when you go home for Thanksgiving, the auntie that get on your nerves, that's your neighbor. The uncle that just tells silly jokes all the time, that's your neighbor. It isn't just people in your own tribe. It isn't just people in your own culture, your ethnicity, your gender and nationality. All image bearers of God are your neighbors. That includes the other people who are different. Even your enemies are your neighbors. And here's the thing. America does not tell us who our neighbor is. Jesus does. So what values are we really living by? What standard is really directing our lives? Jesus describes an enemy as a person who persecutes you, a person who troubles you, a person who harasses you, a person who mistreats you, a person who opposes you, dislikes you, who wishes ill will upon you, who may even discriminate against you or even may seek to oppress you. Jesus said, that's the person who is your enemy. And let's face it, there are people in our life who don't like us. Let's just face it, that is true. Who will work against you? And Jesus said, how do you relate to those people in real life? He's saying, love them. Pray for them. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, oh, Jesus. Uh, I don't know. We either love, pray, or we hate. And hate is such a strong word to use in reference to other people. And it actually begins in the heart. And then it manifests itself in words and actions. The Greek term translated hate in verse 43 is active. Just like love, just like love is active. It's a, it, it manifests itself in, in actions and deeds. It's, it's being hateful towards someone and hostile towards them. Like you show it in your nonverbals. And some of us have nonverbals about us, right? People who come around we don't really like. It's all of that. But none of y'all will ever admit to struggling with hating people because you're good Southern Christians. And that's not what good Southern Christians do. All we say is bless your little heart. So, because, and so there's another way in which we can hate other people and our enemy without being hateful and hostile. Can y'all, can y'all guess that way? Yes, indifference. Good job, Dawson. So indifference. Indifference is, is a so, it's a so what attitude about other people and their experiences in life. In George Shaw's play, The Day of a Disciple, the character Reverend Anthony Anderson says this. He says, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. You see, to hate someone, you at least acknowledge their presence. You at least acknowledge their existence. Hate is not good, but you at least acknowledge they're there. When you're indifferent towards someone, that person does not even exist to you. Does not even exist to you. They don't exist. You don't even see them. You'll walk right past them and not ever acknowledge their existence and presence. That's indifference. 
And one blogger says indifference. It refers to the unacknowledged and the unfelt presence of a person. Having not a single atom of your body affected by a person's happiness and sorrow. That means you could care less. That means you can care less. That person or group of people don't even exist to you. That is indifference. And that is not love. That's not love. Majority of you might not hate certain people, but each of us have people that we're indifferent towards. And Jesus says, I want you to love those people, not live with a spirit of hate and indifference. I want you to continue to love and continue to pray for you. Oh, I love everybody type love. This is a selfless love, an active love, a sacrificial love. It's loving in word and truth, in spirit and truth, in word and deed. It's the first Corinthians 13 type of love. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not ins- insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Please understand, biblical love is countercultural. It's otherworldly. It's un-American. Please know that. And the praying that Jesus calls us to possess, possesses the same otherworldliness. And he's not talking about a Hail Mary prayer that we offer up that's not mindlessly. He's saying, pray for those who don't like you. And please, he's not saying pray for judgment to come upon them. Pray for wrath to come upon them. He is saying offer up effective prayers and powerful prayers on their behalf. Pray for their well-being. Intercede on their behalf that they maybe they will repent of their actions or come to saving faith. Because here's the thing. It's really hard to hate people you're praying for. If you're really praying for them, because it changes your heart towards them. If you're really praying for them, it changes you. And I love that Christ said that. Don't just love them, but pray for them. Try that this week. Try that the rest of the year. Praying particularly for people you don't get along with and see what it does to you. It might not ever change them, but it change you and how you deal with them, how you relate to them. It will. I know these words are challenging. And probably not talking when you get ready to go home and be with certain family members you really don't want to see. But that's God's doing, not mine. And some of you may feel frustrated. And even uncomfortable saying to yourself, how can Jesus tell us to love and pray for people who have wounded us? Why should we love this way? Jesus empathized with us. He empathized with your feelings and he answers those two questions. You see, we show the world who we are in Christ when we love and pray for our enemies. We do think about Think about how much power the church would display next year if we really did that during next year election. If we really love people this way. 
how much that would strengthen our witness in America. But that's not going to happen because we're going to get in our Republican Democratic camps and live there. Think about what the, the light that can shine for us if that really was true in real life, not just on Sunday morning in a 30-minute sermon. When you love and pray for those who are different, when you love and pray for those who disagree with your view of marriage, sexuality, gender identity, justice, and politics, when you do that, you are showing them who you are in Jesus. Just you letting your light shine in the way you love and pray for people who vote differently than you. Again, this is otherworldly. This is un-American. This is kingdom. No other group of people in this country can live and love this way but Christians. Because we're the only ones that have the Holy Spirit living in us. We're the only ones that can love this way in real life, in real relationships. And that changes people. It shows that you really are different. If the people in this country... If their view of Christians is only what we're against, that is a bad witness. If all they know of us is what we're against and not what we're for, that's a bad witness. What we're for, we're for loving those who don't like us. We pray for them. Do you see the difference, the impact that that makes? This active love and active prayer is y'all living out of your adoption in real life. It's living as sons and daughters of the king in a fallen and broken world. In the here and now, in the nitty gritty, in the hustle and the bustle, in the ups and downs. Do you really know who you are as a Christian? Not the adjectives we place in front of our Christianity, like liberal Christian, conservative Christian, black Christian, white Christian, Republican Christian, Democratic Christian. We are sons and daughters of God. That is who we are. And our problem is we love the adjective more than we love sonship and daughtership. And that, my beloved, is idolatry. False identity. Don't love the adjective more than you love who you really are in Jesus. Jesus made you a son and daughter. He didn't make you liberal or conservative. You are a son and daughter of the king on high. That is who you are. That is your identity. That is your purpose. Nothing else. The message Bible says, I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God created selves. That's what Jesus means when he says in, in verse 45a, so that they may, so that you may be sons of the God on high. You get to be a reflection of the Father in heaven in the way you love and pray for your enemies. And this reflection is not an entitlement. Because Christians in America, we have a consumer and entitlement, entitlement mindset. This is an honor and this is a privilege. Only given to those who have saving faith in Jesus. That's who it's given to. Who were y'all before Christ redeemed you? 
Who were you? You need to don't you need to sometimes remember that. Who were you before Jesus saved you? What did he rescue you from? And so don't gloss over that. Because it gives us gives us perspective when we remember what Jesus redeemed us from. It gives us humility. Romans 5 verses 8 through 10 says, God showed his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say righteous. He didn't say son or daughter. He said sinners. Therefore, since therefore we have not been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is who you were. Christ comes into the world in order to save sinners, not good and righteous people. He comes in order to transform sinners into saints, people. He comes in order to to transform, transform enemies into friends, in order to transform orphans into sons and daughters. And all of this is made possible because Jesus freely gave up his life for your life on the cross. His precious blood has paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. And he did not put you on a railway plan. He did not. I know some of you love a railway plan during the holidays. Your debt, all your sin debt was paid in full on the cross. And Christ does not have to die over and over and over. It was one time. One time. Why, why, why was it only one time? Because he's enough. He's enough. His death is enough. And so every believer in this room, you have a special love from God that will not let you go. And you only get this love. You only get this sonship and daughtership by coming to saving faith in Christ alone. And so if you don't know Jesus, then his hands are extending out to you today. And he says, come to me. Come to me that you may have life and live. There's a path that seems right to people, but in the end, it leads to your death. Come to Jesus today. And if you do come to him, you will be in union with him. You will be a son. You will be a daughter of God forever. You get the privilege of reflecting him in the way you love and pray for people who don't like you. I think it's important that we keep in mind that God isn't calling y'all to do something that he hasn't already done and is currently doing. The love he's commanding us to show towards those who oppose us is the same love he has towards those who oppose him. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor Alex? God loves all those who are created in his image. It's seen in a common grace that he gives all people. Like the rising of the sun and the coming down of the rain. The sun just doesn't shine on Christians. Have you ever thought about that? Sun just don't shine on y'all. The rain doesn't just fall on believers. Those are common graces that God gives to all people created in his image. Look at what Christ says about our father, using him as an example in verse 45b. For he makes the sun, the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. Those terms, evil, good, 
just, unjust, in the Greek are adjectives without the definite article. Do you know why that's important? It's not the evil. It's not the good. It's not the just. It's not the unjust. God is not binary. And he's thinking about the people he created. Those terms aren't classes of people. They're not a caste system. They're just adjectives that describe the actions of people. That's what they are. And so God doesn't limit his, and restrict his general blessings and care for only his people. He extends it to all those who are created in his image. Even those who are opposed against God benefit from God's common grace. They just don't know it. God sees all his creation as his neighbor. What about you? Saying, don't just love those who love you. Even the tax collectors do that. Or in our terms, even the politicians do that. Don't only greet and welcome your brothers. Even the Gentiles do that. People who have received God's saving grace are called to be a reflection of that grace in their life. We are instruments of grace, not instruments of judgment. That is not our seat. That is not our role. You are outside your lane if you think that's your purpose. That means loving your enemies, treating them as neighbors. Even those people who don't like you are created in God's image. We're not to love like the world loves. We're not to treat our enemies with contempt, but we're sincerity in love in both word and deed. And this love is not without discipline. It's not love without justice. People accountable. The love that he's calling us to is to have this biblical view of people is that everybody is redeemable. Do you know that the worst person you ever met is still a redeemable person because of who they're created in the image of? So no one's a lost cause. People are some people are just lost sheep in need of the Savior. And so we're praying that we can come to see people through the lenses of the gospel, not through the lenses of any other view. This will help you in your interactions with people if you get to a place where you believe this person is creating God's image. One Christian says, God, one Christian says, God knew how he had done sin and to love what he had done in creating us. Therefore, to love our enemies is to live like a child of God. Sons and daughters, look at that table. It is a reminder of God's unfailing love for you. It is a reminder that Christ died for enemies. It is a reminder that through his death, you are now friends. It's a reminder that through his death, you are now a child. That's what this table reminds you of. And when you look at this table and when you partake of this table, I hope it encourages you. As you reflect upon what the redemption, demon work of Christ has done in your life, that it has changed your identity forever. That when God sees you, he sees beloved. He sees son. He sees daughter. He sees child. You're not to help. 
You are a child. But do you believe that? And Christ says he wants you to partake of this meal. Receive this meal. It is also a reminder that nothing in all creation would be able to separate us. Your struggles won't. Suffering won't. Persecution won't. No matter who's in the over office won't. That your position before the Father is so secure that there's nothing you can do to undo it. Because if you could undo it, then you're bigger than God. But guess what? You're not bigger than God. And so he invites all of his people to partake of this meal with their family. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I'm glad that you're here. And if you have questions about what it means to partake of, to have a question about what it means to be saved and redeemed, please see me at the end of the service. And parents, adults, I ask that the kids abstain from the elements until they've been invited to the table by uh, our session. And kids, this is always my favorite part of communion, that this meal, I want all the village kids, please look at me. I'm your pastor too, and I love each and every one of you. It's my prayer for each and every one of you that one day you will come to saving faith in Jesus, and that you will be able to partake of this meal with your church family. And this, this, this meal, this bread, this juice, this common elements that, that serves the purpose of reminding you that Christ really did come. He really did die on the cross for your sins. And, the, and the, those in the world might not believe that. It may seem you no know, weird to some, but it did happen. And he wants you to come to him in saving faith. And when you do, you will be a son and daughter of God forever. Forever. I would like to invite the officers up uh, who